I had the opportunity to meet with this family earlier, and uh, I'm so glad that we got to to baptize Hayden Stella this morning. And not a better day in the life of the church than we're having right today. Would you pray with me? And know, O God, may your word be proclaimed either through me or in spite of me. Amen. Answer the second half of this phrase. Not all that nice a phrase, but I think you know what it is. Play stupid games. Win stupid prizes. Play stupid games. Win stupid prizes. I think there's a whole industry that has grown up around that. If you ever, sometimes you go down the rabbit hole on YouTube and you watch these fail videos. I watched one just the other day. It's, it's always people that should know that what they're doing is not going to work. The common sense would tell them that. Probably someone, their parents have told them, this is not going to be a good thing. This is not going to work. And yet they do it anyway. This one all had to kind of do with water. One of them had a college kid, look like a frat boy, trying to jump off a roof into a swimming pool. He got close, but he didn't get all the way and kind of flipped in. I don't think he was hurt all that badly. A bad idea, just a bad idea all around. There was another one. There was an above-ground swimming pool that the family obviously was trying to take down at the end of the summer. And so a guy has an axe, and he's trying to chop down the wall of the pretty good-sized swimming pool. Well, it does burst open, but then what happens to him? He gets swept down the hill, and it was a big hill. And so the, the pressure of this water took him many, many feet down there, almost drowned him down at the end of the, down at the, end of the driveway. He should have known better. Another one had a guy. He was going to, obviously, was going to jump out into a frozen pond. Well, it was enough frozen that it didn't work. <laughs> and he just hit really hard and then just kind of slid across the ice for a little while. And then he fell in after that, which probably created another problem. Things that people probably should know are not going to work. They've been told not. They've had people tell them, this is not going to be something that's going to be good for you. They do it anyway. When I was 13 years old, and I could probably stop there. Men know that, okay, you're 13 years old. When I was 13, I was working with my dad out at our farm, and uh, he was working on something. He said, Mark, why don't you go start the burn pile? We had a burn pile out behind our, our uh, barn, and every now and then, two or three times a year, we, we would gather stuff up from around the lake, and, and uh, leaves, and extra hay, and whatever, and we'd put it out there, and we would burn it, so it was kind of a wet morning, but I, I went out there, and I had watched him do this, and on the way to the farm, he had coached me on what I should do, how I should do this, so I went, and uh, uh, I went out, and kind of used the tractor, and kind of pushed everything up into a, a pile, I knew how to do that. I went and got a little propane torch and I, I lit it and I went over several spots and I kind of got it smoldering, but it really wasn't burning. Well, you know, 13 and fire. And so I thought, well, I'm going to make this better. And so I'd seen my dad before. We had a Folgers coffee can and he would go and fill it up with diesel and then he'd put some of that on the fire and it, it would usually get going. Well, the diesel tank was way over there, but the the uh, Folgers coffee can was right here, and a two-and-a-half-gallon uh, uh, can of gasoline. Well, I'll just use the gasoline because, you know, that, that'll work just as well, right? So I fill up the pretty good-sized coffee can, and I go out, and I, I, I knew not to get too close to it, but I, I got up on the fire, and I poured a little on it. 
big fire. Oh, that's great. Well, if a little fire is good, again, 13 years old. If a little fire is good, a lot of fire is great. So I stand back a little bit and I throw the rest of the, or I think I'm throwing the rest of the gasoline on it. Of course, what happens? The fire comes back toward me. I throw the can back behind me. Now the flaming can of gasoline is on top of the tractor. And there's not a whole lot that can melt on a 1952 Ford 8 in tractor, but everything that could melt, melted. And uh, my father came out, and I'll get to the, how that story ended in a little bit. It was not good. I knew what to do. My dad was a safety engineer. He had taught me the right thing to do. I just chose not to do it. In chapter 16 of the story... Uh, we look at some contrast. We look at, at some things, some actions by some kings that guaranteed failure for them and failure for the lives of their citizens and then also some successful things and what it takes to be successful in life. So what exactly determines the difference between success and failure? Those decisions that we make. If you'll remember that the kingdom of Israel has been divided into the northern kingdom, which is called Israel, and the southern kingdom, which is called Judah. In 2 Kings 17, we find that the northern kingdom of Israel finally comes to an end because for over 200 years, they've been making some really bad decisions. Remember, there are a lot of evil kings, not just bad kings, but evil kings. For two centuries, they'd had this one evil king after another, and those kings made one bad decision after another. After 200 years, though, they probably figured that God wasn't going to punish them. I mean, you know, 200 years of warnings, 200 years. I mean, God must have just given up and moved on to another people by then. However, when God acted, He did so decisively. He chose another nation called Assyria to invade Israel. Can we see that first map? So uh, the big kind of orange part there, that's Assyria. And the little part down at the bottom is Israel and Judah. Is, uh, Assyria was a very, very powerful nation at that time with huge armies. And Israel and Judah were the opposite of that. It took three years, but Israel, the north, that northern kingdom, was finally defeated. The capital, Samaria, was captured, and all of the citizens, everyone, was deported to Assyria. And just like that, the northern kingdom of Israel ceased to exist. It was gone forever. History refers to the people that were deported as the lost tribes of Israel. Have you heard that term before? The lost tribes of Israel. Because they no longer exist as tribes, let, let alone a nation. It appears that the Assyrians split them up and sent them to live in various cities in their kingdom where, you know, over time they intermarried and eventually lost all of their cultural identity. It's a heartbreaking story. The descendants, these were the descendants of Abraham who once worshipped God. He, they enjoyed his presence. He brought them into that land that was theirs, and now they were permanently removed from it. They had made really bad, ungodly decisions, which guaranteed failure. 
Scripture says it like this. This happened because they had not obeyed the Lord their God, but had violated His covenant. All that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded. They neither listened to the commands nor carried them out. They rejected His decrees and the covenant He had made with their ancestors and the statutes He had warned them to keep. That's a reason why I think it's so sad is that they chose to follow these worthless idols. They had the God of all creation promising to bless them and take care of them and protect them. And they threw it away. You contrast this with what happened with little Judah in the south, that southern kingdom. Judah was spared being taken over by the Assyrians. The Assyrians just stopped at the border. And why? Because of a different set of decisions. Most of the kings of Judah were, were okay. They were at least lukewarm towards God during this time. Only a few were outright evil. While the Assyrians were dragging off the Jews from the northern kingdom, a young man by the name of Hezekiah, he was only 25 years old, became the king of Judah. And you might remember from the last couple of weeks that out of the 38 kings that ruled Israel and Judah, only five were godly. Hezekiah was definitely one of those five kings. And this is what we learn about how Hezekiah honored God. 2 Kings 18 says, He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done. He removed the high places, he smashed the sacred stones, and cut down the Asherah poles. Hezekiah did some house cleaning, and he turned the people back towards God. It was a remarkable and courageous thing for him to do, even, even for a king. It's all the more amazing because his father, Ahaz, was one of those wicked kings of Judah. 2 Kings 16 describes Ahaz this way. It says, He followed the ways of the king of Israel and even sacrificed his son on the fire, engaging in the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. He offered sacrifices and burned incense at the high places, on the hilltops and under every spreading tree. Despite his father's wickedness, Hezekiah chose the way of righteousness. Under his reign, Judah prospered, and here was his true strength. Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the, the God of Israel. There was no one like him among all the kings of Judah, either before him or after him. He held fast to the Lord and did not stop following him. He kept the commands the Lord had given to Moses. And the Lord was with him. He was successful in whatever he undertook. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him. I love the way that scripture portrays Hezekiah as the king that trusted God. The first step that guarantees success in our lives is to trust God. The second step, as it said in Scripture, is holding fast to the Lord. Doesn't matter how much wealth you acquire, what honors are heaped on you, if you don't trust God and cling to God, then you're nothing. 
The third thing which guarantees success in our lives is obeying God. So we've got, we've got these three practices that Hezekiah had in his life. He trusted God. He held fast to God. And he obeyed God. Samaria, the capital of Israel, fell. And the Assyrians carried off the people from the northern kingdom. Scripture tells us, in the 14th year of King Hezekiah's reign, Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, attacked all the fortified cities of Judah, of the southern kingdom, and captured them. He was on his way to Jerusalem. Only Jerusalem was left. Sennacherib, king of Assyria, offered Hezekiah the chance to surrender, but he refused. Let's take a look at that next map. We got that one? Again, it just, it just shows how large the, uh, the Assyrian Empire was at this time and how small now, especially Judah, and then even smaller. You can see it all the way down to Jerusalem. That's what they were up against. And that's uh, Sennacherib's uh, Instagram picture right there. Came right off of that, pretty sure. give you an idea of what Hezekiah was up against. He wasn't just standing up to a neighborhood bully. He was standing up to one of the most powerful kings in their known world. Sennacherib was the king of a huge empire, and Sennacherib was not the kind of man to take no for an answer. So Sennacherib sends his supreme commander, his chief officer, and his field commander to intimidate Hezekiah and the people of Jerusalem. The scripture says, chapter 19, The field commander said to them, Tell Hezekiah, this is what the great king, the king of Assyria says. On what are you basing this confidence of yours? If you say to me, we're depending on the Lord our God. Isn't he the one whose high places and altars Hezekiah removed? saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you must worship before this altar in Jerusalem. Sennacherib was beginning to stray at this point into pretty dangerous territory. He was starting to play a pretty stupid game. He makes fun of Yahweh, the God of Israel. Scripture continues in chapter 28, verse 28. Then the commander stood out and called out in Hebrew, in their language, Hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. This is what the king says to you. Do not let Hezekiah deceive you. He cannot deliver you from my hand. Do not let Hezekiah persuade you to trust in the Lord when he says, The Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the king of Assyria. The commander continues. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for he is misleading you when he says, The Lord will deliver us. Has any God of any nation ever delivered his land from the king of Assyria? He goes on to mention a number of countries that have fallen to Assyrian conquest. And then he continues, Who of all the gods of these countries has been able to save his land from me? How then can the Lord deliver Jerusalem from my hand? Pretty stupid games. I think Sennacherib basically signed his death warrant right here. 
because he challenged not Hezekiah, not the people of Judah. He challenged God. He ridiculed God. It may just seem like a little saber rattling. We see some of that in the world going on right now. But the attack certainly seemed imminent. Hezekiah now turns to his chief strength. He does what God has told his people to do all along. To put their faith in him. Everything that has gone on to this point is in the lower story. All of this fighting that's going on. All this jockeying for power. It's all the lower story. The king and the army of a powerful, destructive army was at the doorstep. Invasion was certain. But that's just the lower story. But now we see that Judah's king is a true man of the upper story. He sends word to Isaiah the prophet. Isaiah responds, This is what the Lord says. Do not be afraid of what you have heard. Those words with which the underlings of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Listen. When he hears a certain report, I will make him want to return to his own country, and there I will have him cut down with the sword. And here is the, the crux of this story right here. I want to read to you Hezekiah's prayer because this is a prayer of faith. In verse 14, Hezekiah received the letter from the messengers and read it. And then he went up to the temple of the Lord and he spread it out before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim, you alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Give ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, Lord, and see. Listen to the words that Sennacherib has sent to ridicule the living God. It is true, Lord, that the Assyrian kings have laid waste these nations and their lands. They have thrown their gods into the fire and destroyed them. For they were not gods, but, but only wood and stone fashioned by human hands. Now, Lord our God, deliver us from his hand, so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone, Lord, are God. The kings of Israel, Judah, had no appreciation of how God works. But Hezekiah gets it. His life is a reflection of God's character. And he leads his people in a God-honoring way. If his tiny kingdom survives an attack from Assyria, which is much larger with a huge army, then other nations will know that God is who he says he is and that Assyria's pagan gods are powerless. He knows that none of this is about him. Every bit of it is about God. He knows that God is behind it. Judea will somehow survive the attack from Sarakanib's army. Here's the prophecy of Isaiah about what's going to happen. This, these are Isaiah's words. Therefore, this is what the Lord says concerning the king of Assyria. He will not enter this city or shoot an arrow here. He will not come before it with shield or build a siege ramp against it. By the way he came, he will return. He will not enter this city 
declares the Lord. I will descend, I will defend this city and save it for the sake, for my sake, and for the sake of David, my servant. God is going to keep that covenant that he established with David. That's the upper story. In the end, there was no attack, just like Isaiah prophesied. An angel of the Lord entered the Assyrian camp and struck down 185,000 soldiers. An angel of the Lord entered that camp of the Assyrian army and struck down 185,000 soldiers. When the powerful and arrogant King Sennacherib saw this, he gathered what was left of his army and he headed back to Nineveh to stay. It was a decisive victory where God demonstrated once again the power of his covenant love for his chosen people. A demonstration of God and God's power. Who would have ever dreamt that God would send an angel to destroy 185,000 soldiers? Now, we're going to go back to the lower story because you would think after seeing how God intervened on their behalf and spared Judah from a fate similar to Israel's that they would never abandon Yahweh, their God, again. You would think that, but... We play stupid games and we win stupid prizes. Hezekiah faithfully served God for 29 years, but then after he died, his son Manasseh inherited the throne and he was the exact opposite of his father. He reigned for 55 years. He reinstated all the idols that his father had removed. He built the altars to foreign gods in the temple at Jerusalem and he encouraged his people to do the same. Basically, he thumbed his nose at God. He didn't stop there, though. He embraced other practices forbidden by God. He consulted with sorcerers and mediums rather than seeking God for guidance. He even sacrificed his son to the pagan god Moloch by casting him in the fire. Judah under Manasseh became more evil than the four nations that God initially destroyed. Manasseh's decisions, however, as many times that we play stupid games, they have profound consequences. Isaiah, the same prophet who brought God's words of encouragement to Hezekiah, also provided to Manasseh and his successors that God would use the Babylonians as his tool of judgment against Jerusalem and Judah. Yet at the same time, Judah is warned of an exile. But they're promised that after a time they will return to their homeland, unlike the northern kingdom, which would become lost and never be reestablished. Judah's line would remain. You see, in the upper story, God has not forgotten the promise that he made to David. He will bring the Messiah through Judah. And in the end, Judah would be a blessing to the whole world. The promise is fulfilled in Jesus. Good kings, bad kings, Judah and Israel had them all. Good decisions, bad decisions are a part of our lives every single day. 
If the world ever needed a Messiah, it's right now. May we be the messengers of this great news. God brought Jesus through the tribe of Judah. And now it's our responsibility to allow Jesus to work through us to transform this world by making disciples of Jesus Christ. When I was 13, my dad could have just said, you know, son, that's it. <laughs> you burned up my tractor. We're just going to leave it that. But you know, he didn't. He came back, and uh, we did have a safety briefing before we did most anything. But, but he did, but he still did let me do lots of things. He taught me to weld and fix fence, and I, before long, I could do most of those things all by myself. And, uh, and I was lucky to have a loving father that would rescue me from my own bad decisions. So may we learn from our past and recognize God's faithfulness. We need to listen for God's voice and be faithful. Let us pray. Father God, help us to be righteous in our own lives like Hezekiah was. Help us to trust you in everything we do, to hold fast to you even when we're tempted by the world around us and to obey you at all times. Father, we, like Hezekiah, pray that you would cover us in protection, that you would deliver us from our enemies, that you would help us to be the messengers that you would have us to be of the good news of Jesus Christ. That with your help, we could be the agents of change in this world, right here and right now. <clears throat> in everything that we do, we will give you the glory for it. Thank you, Lord. Amen. <clears throat>